0: Kubernetes is an open-source, distributed operating system that allows normal engineers to manage their resources at the scale that Google does. With Docker providing the APIs to make containers easy to work with, Kubernetes allows processes to be easily distributed and replicated across a data center. Kubernetes was created at Google, and today's guest Kelsey Hightower is a staff developer advocate working at Google. He joins me in a conversation today about how Kubernetes works and why it is important to an average developer. Kelsey and I touch on how software engineering is going to look in the next five to 10 years and how a lot of the work around distributed systems will become much easier over time. Before we get to that episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. So if you're interested in advertising on the show, whether you're advertising jobs or if you're advertising a product, you can send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. Kelsey Hightower is a staff developer advocate at Google. Kelsey, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. Glad to be here. Let's start by talking about Docker. You write that containers are the, quote, perfect abstraction for complex applications in the form of an image. What does that mean? Quite simply,
1: it's, you know, I I look at Docker in terms of the image format, you know, kind of what we're talking about here, the image format as a replacement for something like RPM, or a dev in in, in the app get world. So better application packaging, right? So maybe one step above the tarball, like an elite tarball.
0: Right, and you say that Linux distributions provide an OS and a curated set of shared libraries, but Docker disrupts this. How does Docker disrupt or improve the way that we manage dependencies?
1: Yeah, so I think when it comes to like, you know, the OS stuff that you, you get, you know, I like to think of things like singletons, like, you know, things that would just have one copy running on the system, NTP comes to mind, SSH, I think those things are still best delivered in many cases from your, your distro of choice. So if you're using the Debian, just use what Debian ships for that. But when you build your own application, it's rarely these days do you really want to depend on lib XML that is provided by Debian, right? Like two years in, you're like, dude, I just really want to use a newer version of libxml, And that's nearly impossible unless you want to break out of the packaging system. So I think being able to put all of the things that you need inside of a container, I just think it gives you the freedom to move between the distros and only have that kernel as a dependency.
0: One of the themes that always comes up when we're talking about containers on this show is the idea that containers have been around for a long time and with docker it's not necessarily the containers that are exciting but as you say it's the apis that make us excited what is so special about the docker apis what is new about docker honestly
1: you know when i think about analogies that come to mind you know you can say video has been around since the video camera has been around right so we go from film to you know vhs to dvds to blu-rays to now you know, most of the video comes from streaming online. And I think when we get to this part of being able to stream video, you start to have things like Netflix and all of these online streaming services that made the video more accessible. I think that's what Docker did for containers, right? Essentially gave us this new model to make it easier to share, publish, discover. And now we have this whole new world where people are storing their application images and in, in registries. So I think that's kind of what Docker really brought to the table here is a well-defined way of creating, publishing, and then consuming those images in a way we really just didn't have before.
0: Explain the connection between Docker and Kubernetes. And we'll, we'll, we'll get into a discussion of Kubernetes, but why did these two things happen and move into the mainstream developer discussion at the same time?
1: So, you know, I think Docker was there, you know, first for sure. And, you know, what Docker brung was just like this perfect API, you know, when Docker hit the scene everyone started building tools on top because there was just a well-defined API there, right? It was really well-documented. It was really easy to see how you would build an automation a set of tools on top. So when Kubernetes hit the scene, Docker was pretty much the de facto container runtime that people were using for this stuff, right? The API was well-defined. You had an image format that was pretty reusable. And the only thing you really had to do was just construct things around the Docker API. You had network access, volume access, image management. So Kubernetes was just really easy to fit right on top of that.
0: So we're moving towards this time where we no longer think of the operating system as the operating system. Now we think of the data center as the operating system. So as the data center becomes the new operating system, people are very excited about Docker enabling this, empowering people, but Docker doesn't single-handedly solve everything. What are the things that we need to build on top of Docker?
1: Yeah. So I think when we say this statement that the data center is the operating system, you know, you know to be fair, the operating system is still the operating system, right? <laughs> you know, there's things that you need to tweak and tune. Drivers are still a real thing, but the goal now is to kind of, let's, rely a little less on what the low-level OS provides us, right? Let's treat it almost like firmware. It's the thing responsible for making our hardware usable and accessible. It gives us remote access. It helps to stream our logs to another location. So it's still an important piece. But what we're saying now is your day-to-day interaction, right? The thing that starts your processes, the things that gives you process management, aggregated logging, now what we're saying is let's just move that to a higher part of the user land, right? We've always had this in, in OSs where there's you know, kernel space and user land. I think what we're doing now is saying user land is just going to have a much better abstraction on top. So instead of the PS command and you know catting files around and zipping up logs and log rotation, let's just move all of that stuff to a higher level. The complexity is still there. But we're going to treat the individual machines as just CPU cores in a much larger logical computer, which is, is the data center. And I think that's what Kubernetes does. It comes in and it provides kind of this high level kernel, if you will, and a user land that replaces many of the things that most people were doing on the shell.
0: Is distributed operating system an accurate way of describing Kubernetes?
1: I think so in some points that, you know, we we aggregate our process table. So instead of running PS, you do things like kubectl get pods, right? And that gives you a global view of all the processes running on all the machines. And inherently, those are distributed computing problems that we do a lot to make sure that it runs smooth. So that's the core tenet of Kubernetes, right? Take a bunch of machines and present them as a logical computer. And we handle that by using many of the things that distributed computing covers, like using etcd in the background and using raft to replicate that state to give us a consistent view of things.
0: So as we start to move towards this conversation of Kubernetes, what are some misperceptions that people have about Kubernetes that we can get out of the way up front?
1: Number one, I don't think Kubernetes should be your complete end game. You know, there's things that you have to do around Kubernetes, right? You need to still figure out what your machine strategy is going to be. Are you going to go VMs? Are you going to go bare metal? You know, you still have to make that set of decisions yourself. You know, Kubernetes plays nice in either route you take. And also on the very edge, you know, Kubernetes does a lot to integrate low balancers, firewall rules, that sort of thing. But you still need to kind of take care of your network topology. You know, are you going to go flat? Are you going to go L3? Are you going to go bridge it all together and, and do some high level overlay networking? You got to kind of make those decisions as well. So Kubernetes is not a PaaS. This isn't Heroku. This isn't something like Cloud Foundry. It's one step below that, and it's something that you would use to build that. Take OpenShift and Deas as great examples.
0: So would you say that Kubernetes replaces the automation tools and deployment scripts that we've been using for many years, or, or is it something that you have to use in conjunction with automation tools and deployment scripts?
1: Yeah, so we talked about earlier that you still have this concern of the individual machine, and that's where I think configuration management still offers tons of value, right? Getting those machines the way you want it, enforcing policy local into individual machines, even if all you're doing is installing Kubernetes and making sure SSH is correct. You know, you still need, there's a lot of value there. Same for Terraform, right? You know, creating the low-level infrastructure. Kubernetes sits on top of that, right? So Kubernetes would be I'm willing to accept a few limitations. It might mean some constraints, right? So maybe limitations is the wrong word, more like constraints. You're willing to adopt containers. You're willing to deal with the ability to be rescheduled at any given time. You're willing to embrace things like service discovery. If you're willing to embrace those things, we can give you a whole new form of automation where the application is now decoupled from the underlying machine. So no longer are you trying to map the host IP and host name to the application and play games with port mapping, you kind of get this new sophisticated world. So I think it's just more of a new paradigm for doing some of the things we try to have these other tools do.
0: Let's level set and discuss some of the primitives of Kubernetes. Could you define the terms cluster and pod and explain how they relate to each other?
1: Cool, so you know, a cluster would be one or more machines that is providing its resources to be scheduled against, right? So I have, you know, let's say 10 CPUs per machine, I have 10 of those machines, we would say that cluster has 100 cores. So we like to think in terms of cores, some machines will all look the same, there could be one machine that's a little bit bigger than the others. So this is why we like to think in terms of total cores, total amount of memory that's available to the cluster.
0: and. Every node in a cluster is running what is called the kubelet. So what is a kubelet? What are the responsibilities of the kubelet?
1: Yeah, so the kubelet's job is a couple of things. Number one, to report what's available on that node. So in Kubernetes, we have a very centralized model, right? So instead of logging into every server and running a bunch of tasks, each server is responsible for reaching out and reporting its available CPU, memory, resource utilization, and also for checking in and grabbing the work it should be executing and running on our behalf. So the Kubelet's job is to carve up machine resources at a very high level. If you need volumes and storage, the Kubelet's job is to mount those NFS mounts, You know, provision those volumes, get them mounted on the machine. It also communicates with Docker or the underlying runtime, such as Rocket. So we send down these pod manifests to say, hey, Kubelet, I want you to run these containers with these volumes and oh yeah, grab these secrets from the API server and it's the kubelet's job to make that happen on the individual machine.
0: Okay. And I'd like to talk through some examples because I think this would help illustrate people why Kubernetes is useful. And we do a lot of shows about distributed databases. So I'd love to talk through like a, a database distributed across a cluster that's managed by Kubernetes. So in order to do that, we need a replication controller. So kind of give a high-level example of how you would distribute a database on Kubernetes and what a replication controller would do for you.
1: All right. So we're going to also assume that your database is smart, meaning if I join another node in the database, you have some way of replicating cluster membership right? So that's one of the biggest pain points with dealing with data stores today that are not cluster aware, right? You have to deal with, you know, configuration. They don't really support dynamic configuration. So let's say this data store we're talking about has some way of, if you check in, it will propagate membership throughout the cluster. That simplifies things quite a bit. So in the Kubernetes world, what we need is the ability to deploy your application and keep it running. So, In the case of Kubernetes, the lowest level primitive to do that would be a pod, right? So we could assign statically one pod per machine to represent your cluster size. You know, if I need three members of my database cluster, we can create three pods. The problem with pods are they don't babysit themselves. So if a machine were to die that's running your particular pod, that member would be out until you restore the physical node. Kubernetes, we aim to do a little bit better than that. So what we do is provide a replication controller. Replication controller's job is to essentially start that particular pod based on your description on one or more servers inside the cluster. So if we stick to one and one, so one replication controller per member is currently the way most people are doing these things today with the data store. So that way each member has its own identity, each member will have its own data volume, And that data volume and container specification could be one-to-one per database member. Then it's the replication controller's job to ensure that that is running somewhere in the cluster. So if you have three machines, maybe it spreads each of those out on three machines. If you have one database or one machine, but you still need three members, we can have all three replication controllers monitor and babysit three pods on a single machine and attach all their volumes.
0: Okay, and so with these replication controllers, like for different things that I'm replicating, I need different replication controllers, and these replication controllers are managed by the controller manager. So, what does the controller manager do and is there a replication model for the controller manager itself?
1: Yeah, so it, you know, I think to paint a clear picture for people, what Kubernetes is at the very lowest levels. There's an API server where you can model all of these things. Pods, we'll talk about service discovery here soon. Replication controllers. All these are native objects to Kubernetes to allow us to run and provide service abstraction to our applications. Then on the other side, we have the kubelet, what we just talked about. Its job is to take those declarations and make things happen, right, on the server side. Now, we need some functionality. So one piece of functionality we need is a scheduler. And the scheduler's job is to look at these specifications as they come in, and assign them to one of the kubelets. And once it's assigned, the kubelet can take over. Now comes in this replication controller. Again, another piece of functionality that's independent of the others. Doesn't know anything about the others other than I can check for status updates that are being pushed by the kubelet. So we're independent, but I can look at its status updates based on labels. I can watch the API server to see what the current state of the world is. So it's almost like an add-on component That works independently of the scheduler independent of the kubelet to really see if the desired state so if you want three copies of something is that true if it isn't maybe one of your nodes has died and the kubelet is no longer reporting status for that particular worker instance it would be the replication controller's job to stamp out a new pod based on the template you created earlier to get you right back to this desired state which will then be picked up by the scheduler and find a new server running the kubelet to run that.
0: Okay, so let's put this in more exemplary context. If we've got this distributed database, maybe we've got like a a MySQL that we've replicated, and one of the database nodes goes down, it gets totally wiped. What happens? How does the system respond to that event?
1: Right, so let's say your master worker goes down. Now, here's the thing, if you don't have anything to manage dynamic configuration, you're probably going to be screwed. Something has to trigger the failover to the slave. So Kubernetes does not handle that at all, it's out of scope. You gotta have some arbiter of your own doing this. So what would happen is the master process will be considered dead. Let's say the node is actually down, so it will no longer get status updates being reported to the API server. The controller manager responsible for that particular instance of MySQL, will then respond and say, well, I wanted at least one of those masters online. I don't see anything reporting for it. So I'm going to create a new one from the template you provided before, which should also specify the data volume required. So now we submit that as a brand new job to the API server, which will then be picked up by the scheduler. And the scheduler will basically scan the healthy nodes. So these are nodes that are still online, still reporting status and also have capacity to run our master component. That will then be picked up by the kubelet. The kubelet will take that, look at the definition, remount that existing volume. So if you're on a cloud provider, making sure that it's unmounted from the previous instance, mounted it on the new instance, and then starting the process. Problem here though, is you're gonna get a brand new IP address. There's no guarantee you're gonna get the same IP address that you got before. So one thing we do to help with that is you can actually use DNS to query the pod name, right? But this is still requiring a little bit of dynamic configuration because you're not necessarily guaranteed to get the exact pod name if you're using a replication controller. So there's a new feature coming down the pipe called pet set is the working name, which will allow you to preserve identity as your application moves around the cluster, which is the key to make something like MySQL HA work well.
0: okay, very interesting. So what are the other canonical networking problems or snafus that people encounter when they're working with a system like Kubernetes?
1: I think the biggest snafu is people forgot about networking. Oh, it, <laughs> pain, it pains me so that you know a lot of this automation You know, a lot of people just really haven't had to deal with networking very much, especially after moving to the cloud. A lot of things are just kind of given to you, made to work, very simple setups. So with Kubernetes, we have a model where we assume all the pods can talk to each other. All the pods can talk to each node. And we also use a collection of IPs called service IPs or virtual IPs that allow us to intercept traffic on behalf of our services, which are backed by one or more pods, and you hit this virtual IP, and basically we have some DNAT rules in your IP tables that says if you hit this IP address, we're now using IP tables as a load balancer, which will pick up that IP address and round robin you to all the pods that back this service. Now, here's the snafu. You're using Docker, you're using the default Docker bridge across all your machines. So you have 100 machines, And ideally, in the Docker world, you give a subnet to each of those machines so Docker can allocate IP addresses from. So you start with a big range, let's say a slash eight network, and you give each node a slash 24, meaning maybe 250 some odd pods per machine. How do you get traffic between the nodes? Ah, this is where everything falls down for most people. So most people go to reach for something like Flannel or Weave or some container networking solution. Problem with that is you don't really need those things in most setups, you can actually use L3 or just basically routing. So most of cloud providers do provide a route table where you can say, for machine one, I have this Docker subnet, anything that wants to talk to any containers on this Docker subnet should just go to this host IP. If you do that, your whole life is super simple. You just update the route table and things move around just like the internet works. But most people have forgotten this. So they introduce a bunch of complexity They take some performance hits by using things like overlay networking in the cloud for no good reason when they don't necessarily have to go that route initially. So I think it's one of these things where we have to give a reminder that container networking is just networking.
0: Okay, and maybe we can drive this point home further with another example, which is the classic example of a load balancer. If we wanted to make a load balancer on Kubernetes, how complicated is that to set up? And how does the functionality of a load balancer on Kubernetes, how does that compare to just like my classic load balancer running on AWS or something like that?
1: So the key here that people have to understand as a foundational piece is that we have this scheduler that is automating this process of scheduling our applications. So we don't know ahead of time what the IP address is. We do know what the port is going to be thanks to network namespaces. So each application gets its own IP address, meaning that they can all bind to port 80 if they so choose, which means we don't have to play the port mapping game. This is great. So we have an IP address for every instance of our application. Now the drawback to this is, we don't know what that IP address is going to be. Previously, most people would just run one or more applications on a single machine. So they would have the static assignment knowing if I know the host IP, I pretty much know where my applications are running. And I can just pre-bake those into my load balancer like Nginx or HAProxy. In this world, you don't know that. So we need some automation. We need something that can handle dynamic updates. So one solution in easy mode is in Kubernetes today, we have a tool called kube proxy that runs on every machine. And what kube proxy's job is to do is to be this kind of a virtual IP that gives you a stable IP address. So that way you don't have to dynamically update your load balancer with the location of each of your pods as they change, come and go, right? So you can actually just use this virtual IP and that will handle the round around pods that are actually healthy. So as they come and go, the dynamic backend will be updated inside of Kubernetes. So all you need is this virtual IP. That's great. The drawback there though, is you're paying a double hop, meaning you come through your load balancer, then you hit one of the nodes, you go through the virtual IP, and then it does another set of round robbing, load balancing for you. And for some people, this could introduce too much latency for them. You also have the problem is if your load balancer upstream isn't that smart, so you have no way of taking a virtual IP and saying, I want to round robin the destination for this virtual IP across all of my backends so I can have some high availability. Without that, you're only going to one host and now you fall on the floor. So to mitigate that, Kubernetes does support integration with most cloud low balancers and another thing we call ingress. So this allows Kubernetes to kind of manage all of these dynamic updates required to make all of this stuff seamless. And then lastly, I'll tell you about the hard mode, which would be normal mode, in my opinion. (laughs) You can ask Kubernetes for a stream of events that tells you all the active pods and their IPs and ports. So that way you could have your own tooling, process these updates and dynamically add backends as they come and go. There's many tools like this online if you search for like Kubernetes and Nginx integration, you'll see that people are doing these things natively, skipping over some of the easy mode stuff and not paying the double hop penalty.
0: Okay, I love these examples that we've been discussing, and you're really able to dive into them deeply and describe them with a lot of granularity. So let's talk through another one. Typical scenario, I've got a bunch of server replicas, and I realize there's some bug that is in the distribution that's on all of them, or the code that is on all of them, and I want to issue a hotfix to all my server replicas. How do I do that using Kubernetes? Why is Kubernetes useful for this?
1: So this is, to me, the sysadmin dream come true, right? So, (laughs) you know, and early in my IT career, I spent a lot of time as a sysadmin, and even with tools like Puppet, and Chef, you know, they do a lot to make a lot of this stuff pretty easy. You know, once you have your inventory set up, You can go through and say hey anyone running this particular tag or has this role you know run this new set of automation that should hopefully update my app right kubernetes i think kind of takes that one step further you know now we don't really need to track which host is running what we can just target either a deployment which manages replication controllers or just replication controllers directly and this is where things are defined it says this replication controller is managing application version 1.1 now i built i patched my vulnerability i've updated my container and now i'm ready to roll it out now i don't know how many are out there right i don't know if it's 10 or a million copies and i don't need to know because the replication controller's job is to enforce our desired state even when we're asleep so if we go through and we say hey Kubernetes, I have version 2.0, and I want all of my pods to be running 2.0 that are being managed by this particular controller. What we have now as of Kubernetes 1.2, all this can be done server side. So if you're using what we call a deployment and a deployment carries with it the underlying definition for the replication controller, it also carries your update strategy, which is by default rolling update. So if you do your initial deployment with version 1.0, you update that deployment with the 2.0 as the container image tag you want, and you do an update of that manifest inside of Kubernetes. At that point, you can stand back and let the rolling update happen, and it will be managed by the deployment object. You can expect that object to tell you how far it is in that process. Maybe we've done 500,000 updates out of a million, and it will do it in a way that minimizes downtime. All of your pods will have their shutdown hooks called, We'll make sure that containers actually go away before we add new ones. And we keep doing this until the job is complete.
0: Okay, that's a great example. So we've been talking about Kubernetes from this applied point of view, but I'd like to get into a little more discussion of the internals. You know, you touched on the API server earlier. Let's put a little finer definition on this. What are the responsibilities of the Kubernetes API server?
1: Very simple. The Kubernetes API server holds all the objects for things that can be monitored, be manipulated in a cluster. So we have all of our node objects. So in order to use resources and in order for the scheduler to make its decisions, it needs to have a list of all the nodes running. So that's a schema inside of the API server. So when nodes come up, They register themselves, which adds the object to Kubernetes. So that's all of our node listings. We have the same thing for pods, services. Those are those vips we talked about earlier for replication controllers and deployments with the update strategies. All that is modeled in the API server. The API server then stores that in some consistent store. Today, that's etcd. So it ensures that all of this state about the cluster You know, the current status of the nodes, the current status of the pods, things like events, all those gets persisted in a data store. The API server is the only thing in a Kubernetes cluster that gets to talk to this data store. The API server then provides endpoints for watching for changes, event notifications, and also manipulating all the CRUD operations you would do. You know, create, update, and modify. All that happens in the API server, and that's all it does. It holds the definition of everything. It's the authoritative and only place this happens for a Kubernetes cluster.
0: Okay, great. And you touched on etcd. I know you mentioned earlier you wanted to talk some about configuration and service discovery. So what does a Kubernetes developer need to know about etcd? And what does that set of terms mean? Configuration and service discovery. What does that mean for somebody that wants to be working with Kubernetes?
1: So you would never touch etcd as a developer if you're a cluster administrator yes your job is to make sure etcd is up and running in the correct configuration for high availability but if you're writing applications you shouldn't touch etcd at all etcd is an implementation detail so for service discovery that's handled and managed by kubernetes through labels so when you create these pods they're given a set of labels and other parts of the systems like the service abstraction we talked about knows how to find all the pods that make up that service by querying for their labels. And that query logic, all that's in the API server. When it comes to configuration, Kubernetes provides two objects for this. So normally when you have etcd, you kind of pick your key layout, like slash app slash config. And you drop in some arbitrary config there. It could be JSON or it can be a single key value pairs nested underneath that directory. So then you need to know about etcd and blah, blah, blah. In Kubernetes, we give you two primitives. We give you what we call secrets for storing obviously secret data. And things that can be stored there are like tokens, TLS certificates, and some people store normal configuration that may have some secret data embedded in it. You can think of an overall application config where there is a database password. So you know what, you take the whole blob and you store it as a secret. We also have config maps and config maps are A little bit more granular configuration can be managed there, but it's very similar to secrets. You can go raw key value pairs, or you can stick whole files in there. Now, these two objects allow you to reference configuration and secrets from your pod manifest. So you have an application that needs to be deployed, but it needs TLS certificate pair. It needs a database password. What you can do with Kubernetes is you can have all of those pieces of information mounted to specific targets on the file system, So you can say, hey, take this TLS certificate and mount it underneath Etsy, my app, TLS.cert, TLS.key. So now we solve that key distribution problem, right? That's the hardest thing about managing configuration. We don't want to bake these things into our containers. So Kubernetes allows us to use these abstractions to say at runtime, late binding, if you will, attach my configuration to these nodes as they run. And then in the future, those configuration objects will also trigger rolling updates. So I update my configuration, and then I update the name of that configuration that I'm referring to. Maybe it's V one of the configuration that can trigger a rolling update. The same way we trigger updates with a new version of our application. Again, like to me, this is the system dream come true.
0: Totally. So on Software Engineering Daily, we've had we've had a bunch of shows recently. We have an increasing number of shows about the concept of schedulers and these distributed schedulers. So describe what a scheduler is and what is unique about the way that Kubernetes does scheduling.
1: Cool. So a scheduler, to me, for people without any context of what a scheduler is, um, if you're a sysadmin or you're a developer ever in charge of deploying an application, think of all the things you do to make a decision on where to run the next node. Let's say you have three servers in your infrastructure. You know that server one is running the database server and it's pretty loaded most of the time. You would just unconsciously skip that node for running your application because it's not the best fit, right? So since it's not the best fit, you move on to node two or three. Now let's say two or three don't have any applications running on them. Yeah, you don't care, you'll pick one at random. So let's say you pick node three this time. Now you need another instance, another copy of your application. Ideally, if you remember all these things, node 2 becomes the best fit for the application in terms of free resources and likelihood to be the best candidate to run your app. What a scheduler does is takes that and automates it. So what we can do now is start to use data that we're getting from the kubelet saying, hey, here's how much memory I have free. Here's how many applications I'm currently running. We can use that data then to score each of the nodes. So as these workloads come in, we say we need to run a copy of our application. We just run through the list of nodes in the API server, weigh them based on free resources, and then just make a scheduling decision, which would be the placement portion. And now we know that we've, at that particular moment in time, that was the best fit for our application. Rinse and repeat as workloads come and go in the system. So that's the scheduler at a high level.
0: Great. Okay. I want to zoom out and talk about the broader context of these distributed systems, newer tools and projects. You've talked about Docker Swarm and running Docker Swarm on Kubernetes. And Swarm allows you to treat a pool of hosts like a single machine, which sounds very similar to what Kubernetes offers. So how does that compare to what Kubernetes does? So
1: when you look at Docker Swarm, that project goes from the ground up, No. containers, individual containers are the dominant primitive there. So you take a container and you can schedule it across machines. So Swarm gives you this idea of scheduling. Great. So this is that whole scoring and certification process. Recently Docker added some service discovery, right? So now service discovery is baked in. So we place this thing and we update some internal state to say, here's where it's running. In terms of volumes, currently in Swarm, a volume is not a detached thing, even though Docker supports volumes. In Kubernetes, a volume would be its own independent object that could also influence scheduling decisions. So when I think about Swarm, it's going from the ground up, starting from a container and adding enough functionality and abstractions on top of that to provide a complete system. I look at Kubernetes coming from the top down, starting with a unified API for service discovery, Volume management, user management, things like replication controllers, starting from the top and then working our way down to implementation details. So, at a very high level, for some users, they provide very similar things. I have a definition. So, this is kind of one thing that's a little different in Docker. There is no true definition of like a replication controller, if you will. You know, you can say Docker run and make sure that it gets restarted. And then there will be some state that will be somewhat implicitly created that says, hey, I want this container to run somewhere. In Kubernetes, you start with this explicit state. So you never do an imperative action in Kubernetes upfront. You don't say, run this pod. No, 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 no. You say, I would like to have a pod that looks like this. And it's the system's job to figure out how to actually make that happen. So I think that's the difference. But at a high level, some people would say it's pretty much the same for you know, certain set of use cases.
0: Right. Okay. Does the same kind of comparison apply to Mesos, where it, there's some overlapping functionality, but there's also some spaces right now where the two projects are disjoint?
1: Yeah. So when you say Mesos, I think it's always helpful to understand it. It's a two-part scheduler. So Mesos provides the low-level abstraction of here's my resources. So almost kind of like what the kubelet does. You know, here's my resources, the Mesos slave is reporting up. Here's my resource, here's my memory, here's my CPU. And Mesos' job is to go around to the different frameworks or schedulers to say, who would like to use these resources? Now, when you want Kubernetes-like functionality in the Mesos world or the Mesos ecosystem, you can look at things like Marathon. So Marathon has some high-level abstractions to say, oh, I want to run this container. And they've recently added pods to Mesos, meaning now you have a way of describing one or more containers that need to be co-scheduled and a volume that needs to be attached to that collection of pods. So very Kubernetes-like, which is great. I love the fact that these ideas are going back and forth in these communities. So in the Mesos world, you have to compare Kubernetes with things like Marathon or Aurora. Those are things that are a little closer to Kubernetes, the difference being it's a two-part scheduler where Mesos World, they want to share those resources with multiple schedulers and frameworks like Hadoop and Spark.
0: Do you have any thoughts for how you see this space evolving into the future? It seems like there's a lot of different scheduler frameworks right now. It can be hard to differentiate between them from the outside looking in. Are we going to see an increase in specialization?
1: Yeah, so I think you've already seen it in the Mesos world, right? You have Spark, Hadoop, which specialize in, in scheduling uh, yeah. and managing workloads. So the Mesosphere world, or Mesos world, we've already seen this. Each of these schedulers are specialized. They all do one set of things that are unique to their offering. And then they just utilize a common layer underneath, which is Mesos, right? So you've already seen that take off in that community. And the Kubernetes world, is slightly different because in Kubernetes, there's only one way to model a workload via a pod. So whether you're a scheduler, like a cron job type service, you're gonna create a pod. Whether you're just a one-off job, again, you're going to create a pod using our job abstraction. So in Kubernetes, it's assumed that there won't be two parts. There'll be something that defines a job from top to bottom. So what you start to see in the Kubernetes world will be frameworks that built around the Kubernetes job model and platform as a service tools like Deus and OpenShift that just utilize Kubernetes to handle couple of layers higher than what mesos does without marathon right so these things become common underlying building blocks
0: very interesting do you think it's is it somewhere like where it comes down to preference because thinking in the world of web apps like i could build a web app in ruby on rails or django and it doesn't really matter it's just a matter of preference is that how this is it's just a matter of back-end preference
1: Yeah, in my opinion, there will never be one. I I think a lot of people have this dream that there will be one way of doing it. Like, just tell me
0: what to do. What am I supposed to do? (laughs)
1: exactly. Nah, I I think you're going to always have, you know, their specialized needs. So I think this is what the Mesos world really hits on. When you start talking about Hadoop, Spark, Yarn, Marathon, all these things are really like use case driven. They overly optimize for convenience for the developer. And I think when you start to optimize that hard, When you go that deep, then you start to narrow your scope quite a bit, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. More convenience means you're going to have a narrow scope. So then when you have a narrow scope, you're going to end up with many implementations. And I think that's just how the world works. Same thing with any set of libraries and programming languages, right? You optimize for a particular use case, or you came out at a time where what was needed by the communities were what you have. And then time goes on, like in the case of Golang, you know, multi-core dominates the scene. So there was no sense in coming out with a programming language that didn't take advantage of multiple cores natively. So I think it's all about timing, new ideas, rebasing our assumptions, learning from others, which I think is probably the biggest key here is that we're learning from each other. And every time we learn something new or we try something new in practice, out comes a new framework. You know, ask the JavaScript world. Every week, there's a new JavaScript
0: framework. I have asked them. And yeah, there are a lot of JavaScript frameworks. So... The thing about frameworks is they get usability right a lot of times, if you know, from the good frameworks. And these systems like Kubernetes or Mesos, like to the average developer, these may still seem somewhat intimidating, or they're like, you know, "Why do I want to get involved with this?" Or "Why would I want to build my company with this thing from day one?" It's this technology I've never used. So, is this point of intimidation? Is this just like kind of a lack of people really? putting their foot down and going for it and like trying to build on Kubernetes from day one? Or is it more like the tooling and the usability are just not there yet to the point where people can say, oh, this is really comfortable and easy to use?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I I think it's just pretty raw right now. All this stuff is relatively new. We're exposing low-level APIs to people directly. You know, there's no reason why you should be creating replication controllers every day. You know, the idea with replication controllers and deployment objects are you know, you create these things once per set of services you have, and you use something like continuous delivery or some framework to say, look, just update the version that you need, and then let this controller kind of automate and, and proliferate it throughout your cluster. So I think we're still in the early days, but long-term, I always tell people this, long-term, what people are really asking for is something that looks like Heroku and cloud functions, <laughs> right? Because, you know, Heroku was pretty badass. The problem was it just had a little bit too many limitations, right? And I think the biggest one was the limitation on runtime, right? You just couldn't use all the libraries you wanted to. Mm -hmm. And ideally, some of the things that Heroku pushed on the world, 12 factor being key here, was, look, if you do these things, then a lot of automation can take place on your behalf. So with a combination of containers coming out, giving people the ability to have those custom runtimes, use any library you want and get some isolation from each other. I think that's awesome. But at the end of the day, if you set up Kubernetes correctly, in my opinion, or not just correctly, but once you really get a mature Kubernetes setup, it starts to feel like Heroku. Someone checks in some code, things get built, new container spits out, a controller gets updated, and it starts rolling out throughout the infrastructure with little to no downtime. So I think this is just a better building block for people still rolling their own or vendors that are providing solutions like Heroku, OpenShift, Deus, have better building blocks to come from.
0: So as we kind of begin to wrap up, you mentioned cloud functions, and I think this is like the Google offering that's somewhat similar to AWS Lambda. That's correct, right? That's right. Okay. So how does that fit into this conversation as we're kind of talking about the types of architectures people are going to want to build in the near future?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've already seen people with prototypes of building something like Cloud Function or Lambda on top of Kubernetes, right? The key to doing those services are providing a platform to your users. So the contract with the developer is you implement this function, essentially like an on-message handler, and then it will be deployed as necessary. So if you have a dynamic scheduler and you have something that's at the, at the front door saying, hey, a request just came in, then you can schedule a job to handle that request, right? So I think a lot of these things will allow people to build these high order platforms Mm. and provide an even limited interface. Do you really need to bind to a (laughs) port? Do you really care about binding to ports? Actually, the truth is no, right? That's just an implementation detail that we happen to use TCP as a transport. Get rid of that and just say, look, if an HTTP event shows up, a message shows up, a row changes in my database, I want to know about it. Give me the data and I'll process it. That is, to me, in some use cases, I don't think you're going to do that for everything in the world. But I think a lot of use cases that I've seen in the world can be handled that way. So
0: that's- so. Does it in that case, does a developer have to, I mean, I know we're bleeding into the discussion of serverless architecture. I don't want to go too deep it down this path. But does that bleed into like you need some sort of serverless thing and then you also need to set up Kubernetes? Or does it just work where you have cloud functions and you just call the cloud function and Google or whatever uh, cloud service provider takes care of all the underlying scheduling and setup for you?
1: Yeah, so I think long-term, Kubernetes should be an implementation detail. So if I was in ops, Mm. my goal would be to provide the platform. It would be nice if I could provide my development team something that like Cloud Functions where, hey, if you implement this function, we'll take care of the nitty-gritty details of what that means. That would be more of a contract with the infrastructure. Or if you really do need to run you know, your full custom runtime, you need to bind to the port and offer, you know, services with ports, then sweet, give me your container image. And then I'll also wrap that up. But ideally, I want to keep people from having to deal with Kubernetes directly, deal with Marathon directly. You know, those are implementation details that I should be free to change and keep the same abstractions of, hey, it's a container.
0: Totally. Okay, well, Kelsey Hightower, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a really good conversation about Kubernetes and Everything under the sun related to that. So, appreciate you coming on Software Engineering Daily. Awesome. I really
1: enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks a lot. I hope to talk to you soon. All right. All right, man. See ya. Bye.